From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Monday, July 17th, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, Chinese and U.S. climate envoys have held a four-hour meeting in Beijing. Russian authorities say they've opened an investigation after a deadly explosion on a bridge in Crimea. And flooding across central and southeastern South Korea has killed at least 40 people. In business, Chinese officials say the country's economy is showing resilience. In sports, Wimbledon has a new men's champion. In culture and entertainment, an exhibition featuring Dunhuang and the ancient Silk Road. Now the day's top stories. Climate envoys from China and the United States have met in Beijing. Xie Chenhua and John Kerry held talks for over four hours. A Kerry's visit comes after weeks of intense summer heat, which scientists say is being worsened by climate change. China says the two sides will discuss ways to jointly address the issue. Uh, it says that uh, China hopes the U.S. will uh, work with China to create favorable conditions and an atmosphere conducive to bilateral climate cooperation. The U.S. State Department says Kerry's trip also aims to promote a successful COP28 later this year. Soon Tianyuan has more on the visit. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry has held talks with his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping on climate cooperation. This marks the resumption of formal climate talks between China and the U.S. after a year-long halt. The suspension was part of Beijing's response to former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Experts say the uh, U.S. special envoy's visit underscores the urgency of climate collaboration. Uh, Beijing and Washington have also pledged to uh, more actions uh, to maximize international investment and finance to support developing countries uh, in their transition to green, low-carbon and renewable energy. 
John Kerry is the third senior U.S. official to visit China in the past month following U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's visit and uh, Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken in June. That was soon Chen Yuan in Beijing. China and the U.S. are two of the world's largest greenhouse gas emitters. There's hope the two sides can renew cooperation ahead of the key climate conference later this year. Nathan King explains. Carbon-cutting targets, especially in the West, have not been met. Hundreds of billions of dollars of climate financing haven't materialized, and hopes are not high for the next key climate conference, COP28, due to be held at the end of November in the United Arab Emirates. That is why John Kerry's visit to Beijing is so important. Kerry, now the U.S. climate envoy, has close relations with his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping. Their cooperation at previous global summits has led to several diplomatic breakthroughs and hopes are that their relationship can be revived. China has been actively responding to climate change with sustained and pragmatic actions. There are signs for some optimism. While relations between Beijing and Washington are not good, both are moving rapidly forward on establishing their green agendas. China leads the world in electric vehicle production, solar power and other cutting-edge technologies. The U.S. has adopted policies that are leading to hundreds of billions of dollars in investments in green energy projects. And as the two largest emitters, the U.S. and China are uniquely placed to find urgent solutions to bring down the rapid pace of climate change, especially when it comes to the financing of green initiatives for the developing world and agreeing on how and where the money is spent. Chinese and U.S. cooperation at the last climate summit in Egypt was key to agreement on a loss and damage fund for countries already hit hard by climate change. Their cooperation now could help break the current deadlock ahead of November's climate summit. That was Nathan King reporting. Despite the U.S. government's competitive approach to China, the state of California has been leading cooperation on green energies. But the impending carbon goals require faster technological developments, and clean energy experts are calling for more cross-national cooperation to resolve the global climate crisis. Li Yunqi reports. So far, the most available technology on the market can only reduce less than 50% carbon emission. So in order to achieve carbon net zero, we still need more than 50 of the coming emissions. Green tech innovations are crucial in reducing the negative impact of human activities on the environment. According to Dr. Wang Qi, chairman of the Silicon Valley-based U.S.-China Green Energy Council, development of green tech in the next decade will largely determine whether countries can achieve their carbon goals by 2050 and 2060. Although many technologies have made a promising progress in research centers, their true benefits can only be fully realized through widespread use outside the lab. Dr. Robert Weisenmiller is the former chair of the California Energy Commission. You know, it's very important to put the funding available to, to do the research, and then once that's done, then you know, essentially just stop moving that research out into the field and basically into the factories. China has become a global leader in the production and use of green technologies. A 2021 estimate shows the country's installed capacity of solar power had surpassed 300,000 megawatts. That's higher than the combined capacity of the next five countries on the list, the U.S., Japan, Germany, India, and Italy. Meanwhile, Dr. Weizenmiller says California is the pioneering state in the U.S. when it comes to green tech innovations. 
According to the U.S. Department of Energy, California holds around 39% of EVs in the country, and is home to the world's largest geothermal system. Dr. Weizenmiller says California's green tech collaboration with China has been consistent for 20 years through three administrations, despite the federal government's growing competitiveness towards China. We would expect the federal government to take the lead, say, on defense, on foreign policy, and、uh, you know a lot of the more economic issues. And we would expect states to take more of a lead on climate, on sort of the business development. Uh, and uh, the technology side. On top of government bodies, researchers are also seeking to expand the channels for communication. The Silicon Valley-based U.S.-China Green Energy Council held its 14th Green Energy Summit at the end of last year. Chairman Wang Qi said they hope to serve as a platform to integrate policy, investment, and research projects between the two countries. Each conference, we invited Nobel laureates and a member of Chinese Academy of Engineering. Or from U.S. Academy of Science and also the government officials, and as well as as businessmen, executives from the leading energy company or the startup, clean tech startup companies, come to, together and talking about some of the very frontier, the very leading technology, the issues. The fact that many business activities transcend national borders also requires collaboration to mitigate their impact. Ma Jun founded the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs in Beijing to keep tabs on the environmental compliance of businesses. The institute gained recognition through a lengthy negotiation with Apple, resulting in the disclosure of a supplier list and improved transparency regarding emissions data. Considering China's position as the hub of global supply chains, Ma says no single country can achieve the goal of offsetting carbon emissions alone. We、uh, have been. Working on green supply chain program with、uh, a whole group of、uh, major American companies,、uh, including the、uh, IT companies like Apple and Dell and、uh, and textile companies and、uh, and companies from brands from other industries uh, um, to try to reduce the carbon footprint of、uh, of the、uh, supply chain. However, even with all these efforts, it remains unclear if they will be sufficient. One thing that experts widely agree on is the urgent nature of climate issues. Resolving this global crisis will need global collaboration to push the technological advancements that pave the way to reaching the impending carbon goals. For the Beijing Hour, this is Liu Yunqi. Algerian President Abdelmajid Taboun is in Beijing to pay a five-day state visit to China. It's the Algerian leader's first visit to China since taking office. And for more on bilateral ties, Wang Mengjie spoke with senior research fellow He Wenping from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. It said good friends need solid foundations, and ties between China and Algeria go back decades. Ever since 1958,、uh, when the Algeria this.、Uh, Uh, you know, uh, temporarily, uh, this uh, government was established, not yet fully independent, and then China already uh, recognized uh, this Argentina new government, and this was、uh, very unique. In return for China's recognition, Algeria supported the restoration of China to its lawful seat in the United Nations. In a new era, ties between China and Algeria are growing stronger. 
The two sides established a comprehensive strategic partnership in 2014, making Algeria the first Arab state to forge such partnership with China. Both sides have also had fruitful cooperation under the framework of the Belt and Road Initiative. China has been Algeria's biggest trading partner for more than a decade. Trade between the two countries reached 9.4 billion U.S. dollars in January 2023, a 60% increase compared to the year prior. Built in part by Chinese companies, the Algeria South North Expressway passes through the Sahara Desert, and along with the new Algiers Airport, it's helping guarantee economic stability while boosting livelihoods. To better combat COVID-19, Algeria helped produce China's Sinovac vaccines in 2021. The country also sent its first communication satellite with China's help in 2017. But for Professor He, giving a man a fish is not enough. The key word: cooperation. We need also teach how to fishing. Apart from、uh, Egypt becoming the very first. African country now already、uh, can produce the made in Egypt vaccine. So Algeria is the second one、uh, after Egypt, and Algeria now also has very close cooperation with Chinese、uh, company now produce their own vaccine. As long-term partners, the friendship between China and Algeria has weathered all kinds of global challenges. Experts say President Tabon's visit will now bring the ties into a higher level, building stronger branches from the deep roots. That was Wang Mengjie on China-Algeria ties. Coming up, Russia investigates a deadly explosion on a bridge in Crimea. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour brings you an hour of comprehensive news and information from both China, China, and the rest of the world. Rest of the world. A mix of news, sports, and entertainment. In-depth analysis of the day's big stories, as well as the most comprehensive business of the day. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. Your very own window to China and the rest of the world. We're at twelve minutes past the hour. Russian authorities say they have opened a criminal investigation after a section of the Crimea bridge was blown up. Russia said Ukraine launched the attack that killed a couple and injured their daughter. Ukrainian officials have declined to comment. Russia says the attack damaged the decking on a section of one of the two road links. Russian President Vladimir Putin says Moscow will use its own stockpile of cluster munitions if Ukraine uses those provided by the United States. Washington announced a plan to supply Kiev with the munitions earlier this month. Russia insists it's never used the ordinances against Ukraine during their ongoing conflict, but the Human Rights Watch organization says both Russia and Ukraine have used cluster munitions. Dasha Chernyshova reports from Moscow. Russian President Vladimir Putin has said that Russia has the rights and will reserve this right should Ukraine be using the cluster munitions in the aerial special military operation. Then Russia will do the same. I'd like to note that the Russian Federation has a sufficient stockpile of different types of cluster munitions. Different types. We haven't done this before. We didn't use them, and we didn't have to, despite of a known lack of munitions for a certain period of time. We didn't do it, but of course, if they are used against us, we reserve the right to take reciprocal action. 
For months now, Moscow says it has been refraining from the use of cluster munitions in the area of the special military operation. And it has been saying that the decision of the United States to actually allow Ukraine to use this type of uh, military means was definitely described by the White House itself, saying that was actually a crime. So everybody understands how detrimental those cluster munitions are for the civilian population. So Russia says definitely it will be forced to use these type of munitions to defend its armed forces. That was Dasha Chernyshova in Moscow. A criticism is mounting over Washington's decision to provide the cluster munitions to Ukraine. Uh, Laos Foreign Ministry has issued a statement expressing its concern over the use of such weapons. The Southeast Asian country is still suffering from the consequences of U.S. cluster bombs dropped in Laos during the uh, Vietnam War. Uh, Dusita Salkow has more. Sometimes the most peaceful places hide the most tragic scars. Because it's what you cannot see that has shattered the lives of people. A decade ago, it was just a normal day. Young boys doing what they usually do, playing, throwing around a small round object they found in the forest. Intrigued, they tried to cut it open with a knife. A few strikes, then an earth-shaking explosion. A sound that haunts still, even to this day. I picked up my grandson's wounded body. He died from the explosion. I always think about this incident when I work, eat. I always think about it. The older generation here lived through the war. They believed it ended. But this incident that left three dead reminds them that they are just merely surviving peace. A sentiment felt throughout this entire country. Between 1964 and 1973, the Americans flew more than half a million missions over Laos, dropping more than two and a half million tons of bombs. That's one bomb every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine straight years. We know that still to this day, all 18 provinces uh, of Laopedia are contaminated. It was a conflict that became known as the Secret War. Everywhere, every place, houses were destroyed, our land was destroyed, livestock killed. We don't consider this as a secret war. We all see the consequences. Say Saman has been doing this for 28 years. It's a painstaking task, using detectors to manually map every centimeter of the ground. She tells me that it is impossible to clear Laos of all the bombs dropped. But each bomb destroyed is potentially lives saved. Children account for 40% of victims. The allure is fatal. What becomes of war after war ends? What becomes of the people that try so hard to move on? Because for them, war never really ends. It silently lingers in rice fields, playgrounds, villages, ready to claim more innocent victims. That, that was Desita Salkout reporting. European leaders and Tunisia's president have announced progress in the building of closer economic and trade relations and on measures to combat the smuggling of migrants across the Mediterranean Sea. The leaders of Italy, the Netherlands and the European Commission expressed hope that a memorandum newly signed with Tunisia will pave the way for a comprehensive partnership. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says the latest trip secured an agreement on a package of measures. This is an investment in our shared prosperity, stability, and in future generations. The reasons for it are compelling. Tunisia and the European Union are bound by a shared history and geography. 
and we share strategic interests. In times of geopolitical uncertainties, it is important to deepen cooperation with our strategic partners. So we agreed with Tunisia on a comprehensive package of measures that we will now put into practice swiftly. Von der Leyen says the EU will work with Tunisia on an anti-smuggling partnership, will increase coordination in search and rescue operations, and both sides also agreed to cooperate on border management. The conflict in Sudan has entered its fourth month now. A government source says representatives of the Sudanese army have returned to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia for talks with the paramilitary RSF. The army says the RSF killed five people and wounded 22 others in a drone attack on a military hospital northwest of Khartoum over the weekend. Naba Mohideen has more. There is only uh, reports and uh, information about uh, the Sudanese army sent their delegation to Saudi Arabia and they or- already arrived. RSF leader uh, issued a communique through his verified Facebook page and said uh, he formed a committee to meet with the Sudanese political party in order to discuss about the crisis and reach a comprehensive resolution. Um, also, some of the Sudanese army leadership uh, and the vice president of Sudan's ruling sovereign council uh, said they are open. Uh, they are open to any uh, resolution that not excluding anyone and a comprehensive resolution. It was uh, the first attack of a series of attacks in Undurman city between the Sudanese military and the rabbit support forces. Due to the Sudanese army communique, they are accusing RSF of using artillery strikes and uh, targeting Alia hospital, which is um, uh, a military hospital, but also civilians are treated there. It killed uh, five people. The next day also witnessed an attack on the same hospital. There is tensions in Undurman while there is some deployment That was Naba Mohideen on renewed fighting near Sudan's capital. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, deadly flooding in South Korea. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. At 20 minutes past the hour, flooding and landslides in South Korea have killed at least 40 people in central and south, uh, southeastern regions. More than 16,000 people have left their homes for safety. Rescuers have been searching through the mud and debris to find the missing and other victims. Uh, Jack Barton reports from one of the worst hit areas. The village of Yecheon to the southeast of the South Korean capital, Seoul. The wall of mud that hit this village was so strong, it flattened everything in its path. The rescue team working in the mud over there has found the remains of one more victim. One more death in a small village where everyone has grown up together. I don't feel good. I feel like death. I force myself to walk. I force myself to eat. I force myself to live. Locals gather at a nearby community center. Inside, a picture of happier times. There's five people dead and other people don't have a house. We're gathering here because we have to eat and we have to sleep. Emergency services as well as volunteer organizations have gathered in this village to try and help find the people who are still missing, often using the most rudimentary tools such as steel poles to probe through the mud. 
The community centre also serves as a base for the rescuers, who have to navigate what's left of the broken road to the upper village on foot. On top of the terrible loss of life, the torrential rains that South Korea has seen over the past week have also caused extensive damage to infrastructure and food crops. There will no doubt be a clean-up bill in the billions of dollars once the rains finally stop. Until then, the priority is to continue to evacuate thousands of people away from danger spots. That was Jack Barton reporting on the aftermath of deadly floods in South Korea. Venice, Italy is not the only city that is sinking. A new study suggests that many other cities around the world are also sinking due to a phenomenon that's called underground climate change. Dan Williams spoke with study author Alessandra Loria at Northwestern University about the findings. The architecture tour is one of Chicago's key attractions. It allows guests the chance to learn more about the history and the design of some of the city's most iconic buildings. Only the buildings here, as in other cities, are sinking and shifting, albeit slowly, according to a new study. The problem is a result of underground climate change, otherwise known as subsurface heat islands. Researchers at Northwestern University found that the ground beneath major cities is heating up so much that it's becoming deformed and that could ultimately cause infrastructure to crack. What we were able to do was to quantify ground deformations uh, caused by underground climate change and uh, assess that they are significant and they can be so remarkable, they say, that on a case-by-case -case basis they can represent uh, a threat for the so-called operational performance of civil infrastructure. In other words, the day-to-day -day function of structures and infrastructures. The study team installed more than 150 temperature sensors above and below ground in Chicago. They found building basements, parking garages and subway systems generated significant heat underground. That, combined with warmer air above ground, has caused layers of sand, clay and rock beneath to subside or swell by several millimetres, impacting the foundations of buildings. In cities such as New York, but also London, Paris and, and dense cities, um, this phenomenon is even more intense. So underground climate change represents another example of the influence of human presence on the Earth system. It's, it's another way we are um, impacting the Earth system. Although the study raises concern about the future of cities and the building of vast skyscrapers, the authors say there is also an upside to the phenomenon. They point to the potential of capturing the heat and putting it to good use. Through shallow geothermal technologies, there will be the possibility to absorb at least a portion of that waste heat and reutilize that for space heating and hot water production in buildings. So, indeed, it's uh, it's not only a threat, but a especially uh, an opportunity. Study author Alessandro Rotolaria is calling for further research into the phenomenon, noting that some buildings could be more prone to the issue than others. But he is hopeful that if nothing else, his team's findings will inspire change when designing new buildings. That was Dan Williams in Chicago. Arizona has seen its temperatures soaring over 110 degrees Fahrenheit or 43 degrees Celsius for over two weeks now. Local residents, including 40-year-old Mike Kieran, uh, took to uh, water parks to stay uh, cool. It is miserable being outside unless you're in the water somehow, and it's actually not safe at all. 
Forecasts predict that Phoenix will break its record of 18 straight days over 43 degrees Celsius that was set back in June of 1974. The inaugural International Congress of Basic Science is underway in Beijing. The event brings together over 800 top-notch scientists and scholars to discuss the development of basic science. Eight Fields Medal winners, three Turing Award winners, and a Nobel Prize laureate are attending the event. Uh, Hugo Domino Copen is one of the four recipients of the 2022 Fields Medal, and he addressed the importance of basic science. Basic science is more and more uh, useful for, uh, for technological reasons first. I mean, clearly computer science, math and physics have helped in the past and are taking even more and more influence with uh, artificial intelligence, for instance. Xingtong Yao is president of the International Congress of Basic Science and also a Fields Medal winner. The scientist says that he's hopeful that the academic exchanges between experienced scholars and ambitious youth at the conference can contribute to the development of the world's basic science knowledge. The presence of top scholars from around the globe allows us to see what the world's highest academic level looks like while communicating with and learning from each other. I hope young scholars can take this opportunity and at the same time will make sustained efforts to cultivate the younger generation so that the waves behind can drive on those ahead. Now the conference will last for two weeks and some of the world's leading scientific minds will hold in-depth discussions on on frontier research in the fields of mathematics, theoretical physics, and computers. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has announced that it'll use $300 million from the Inflation Reduction Act to monitor agricultural emissions. It'll create a research network to monitor carbon levels in soil. To do that, farmers have to be able to measure the amount of carbon in their fields. It can take years of field work, careful chemistry in the lab, and lots of expensive equipment to puzzle all that out. We're at 28 minutes past the hour. Beijing's at 23 degrees overnight. Tuesday will be sunny with a high of 35. Hong Kong is bracing for Typhoon Talum that's expected to bring rainy and windy weather with a high of 29 on Tuesday. On the mainland, authorities in Guangdong and Hainan have also made preparations, canceling flight, train, and ferry services. A torrential rain is also expected across Guangxi, Hunan, and Jiangxi in the coming days. Well, elsewhere, Tokyo's 29 overnight, a light rain turning to overcast and 39 on uh, Tuesday. Islamabad's at 27 this evening, then a light rain turning to moderate rain and 35. Bangkok's at 27 overnight, then a light rainfall and 36 degrees tomorrow. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, Chinese and U.S. climate envoys have held a four-hour meeting in Beijing. Russian authorities say they've opened an investigation after a deadly explosion on a bridge in Crimea. And flooding across central and southeastern South Korea has killed at least 40 people. Shane Begum with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. 60 minutes of comprehensive news, your window on China and the world. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigham with you on this Monday. Still to come. In business, Chinese officials say the country's economy is showing resilience. In sports, Wimbledon has a new men's champion. In culture and entertainment, an exhibition featuring Dunhuang and the ancient Silk Road. 
Uh, to contact us, you can email BeijingHour at CRI.com.cn or follow our Twitter account at CGTN Radio. Uh, now check out the day's headline news. Here's Tianyu. Thank you, Shane. China says it will follow the consensus reached between the leaders of China and the United States during their meeting in Bali and jointly tackle climate challenges with the United States. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry is in China for a four-day visit. He has met his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping for a four-hour meeting. The meeting comes ahead of the COP28 climate summit later this year. China has raised its emergency response as Typhoon Talim is bringing heavy rains to the southern parts of the country. Work teams are providing support for local disaster relief in Guangdong and Hainan provinces. Hainan has canceled transportation services and suspended school, work, and local businesses. Guangdong has recalled nearly 10,000 fishermen and maritime workers back to shore. The typhoon is also impacting Hong Kong. Some people are already seeking refuge at shelters. The Hong Kong Observatory has advised residents to, to stay away from the shoreline and avoid water sports. The African Union says a permanent and unconditional ceasefire in Sudan will pave the way for all other processes, including humanitarian relief. Commissioner Bankley Adoye says they are working with partners to ensure dialogue. Fighting continues, regrettably. What we have to do is to number one to overcome that pressure, have a united diplomatic pressure on the parties, consistently. Saudi Arabia and the United States have mediated talks between the Sudanese army and the rival paramilitary RSF. Agreements on a ceasefire and establishing humanitarian corridors have not yielded desired results. Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammad Shia al-Sudani and Syrian Prime Minister Bashar al-Assad have held talks have held talks in Damascus for the first time since the outbreak of the Syrian war in 2011. The two leaders discussed securing their shared border from security threats, including Islamic State militants, and agreed to work closer together on reducing drug smuggling. Sudani said they also discussed ways to combat drought and climate change and to secure water supplies that are dwindling as a result of upstream damming by Turkey. Iraq and Syria maintained relations throughout Syria's civil war, even as other Arab states withdrew their ambassadors and closed their embassies in Syria. Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov says Moscow is ready to meet all grain needs of the Arab states. At the sixth round of the Russian Gulf Cooperation Council dialogue in Moscow, Lavrov says despite the difficult geopolitical conditions, Russia managed to maintain a positive trend in mutual trade. We sell grain. We continue to sell it as we used to sell. We fulfill all our obligations without exception. We discussed today that we are ready to meet all the needs, including additional needs of our Arab partners. There are no obstacles for this, and no conditions are required that would depend on those who are not able to fulfill their obligations. Last year, the trade turnover between Russia and Gulf countries increased by more than six percent compared to the previous year, and exceeded 11 billion U.S. dollars. A joint action plan for strategic dialogue was adopted following the meeting. The plan is expected to provide a platform for the expansion of their bilateral cooperation across many fields. A UN replacement ship has arrived in Yemen to transfer crude oil from a tanker abandoned off the coast of the country.
The first phase of the emergency rescue operation will last two weeks. In the second phase, a mooring buoy will be secured to the seabed to fix the replacement ship. The Yemen-owned supertanker was carrying more than 1.1 million barrels of crude oil. It has not undergone ma- maintenance since 2015 because of the civil conflict. Airplanes and helicopters are trying to extinguish a wildfire in Spain. The fire has charred 4,600 hectares of woodland and burned 20 houses and buildings on one of the Canary Islands. Fernando Clavillo is the president of of the Canary Islands. He says there are hopes that with better weather conditions, the fire can slow down its advance. Yesterday, we had 406 firefighters working on site. We made 241 aerial discharges of water with a total of 352,000 liters. We must highlight that at times the task was very difficult because of low visibility due to the smoke, the ash, the wind, and the heat, which made the operation of the aircraft difficult. Firefighters from mainland Spain flew to the islands in attempt to stop the fire from affecting Caldera del Taburente National Park. Most of the 4,000 local residents who evacuated the area earlier have now returned to their homes. Authorities urged people not to go near the area on the northwest side of the island. Thank you very much for the update. That was Tianyu.、Uh, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital. And coming up in business, Chinese officials say the country's economy is showing resilience. <laughs> Would you like to receive the latest news updates about China and the rest of the globe? Tune in to the Beijing Hour every weekday for the latest in politics, business, sports, and entertainment from a Chinese perspective. Subscribe to the Beijing Hour for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thirty-seven minutes past the hour. Now turning to business and stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished lower on Monday. Timothy Pope has more. Investors seem to be holding onto their wallets and、uh, waiting to see what kind of stimulus measures the Chinese leaders decide、uh, to approve at high-level meetings later in the month. The Shanghai Composite Index closed about nine tenths of one percent lower. The Shenzhen component shed about six tenths of one percent. We saw the utilities sector was the only really broad sector in the positive, with、uh, predicted higher demand for electricity as extremely hot weather continues to grip、uh, many parts of China. Power producer Huaneng was one of the top gainers on the Shanghai Composite Index. Rising by about two、uh, percent, while there was a broad pullback by investors on most other sectors,、uh, we did see gains for Chinese pork producers.、Uh, the hog breeder Wen's Foodstuffs added 1.8 percent. That came after、uh, reporting pork sales jumping almost 38 percent year on year last month, and、uh, only reporting a slight drop off in poultry sales. China, of course,、uh, consumes around half of the world's pork, and、uh, official data showed that the country's domestic Output in Q2 was the strongest quarterly pork production in a decade. Now, as market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai,、uh, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange、uh, suspended trading under the effects of Typhoon Talim, and、uh, in Japan, the Nikkei had no trading either. National Bureau of Statistics says China's gross domestic product grew 5.5 percent in the first six months to 59 trillion yuan, or roughly 8.3 trillion U.S. dollars. Spokesperson Fu Linghui says China's economy demonstrates its resilience despite a weak recovery in the global economy. Globally, economic recovery has been sluggish since the beginning of the year, with persistent inflationary pressures. 
Major economies have implemented monetary tightening measures to tackle inflation, which has led to noticeable spillover effects. However, in the face of these complex external challenges, China's economy has managed to outperform major developed economies, showcasing its robust resilience in economic development. Professor Michael Powers from Tsinghua University School of Economics and Management shares his perspectives about China's first-half economic performance. First, the the 5.5 percent indicates that the economy is more or less on target for the government's、uh, pr- projected figure of five percent for the year.、Uh, the second quarter, although higher than the first quarter, somewhat lower than expectations, but 6.3 percent is a reasonable place to be. And I, I think that if one takes a longer term、um, view and more of a sort of more of a technical analysis than than a current events fundamental analysis. You'll see that、um, looking over the past decade, the GDP growth figures for China have been following a very smooth curve until we get to the COVID period. Of course, several several years of chaos, but we're back、um, on the other side of that, as though one's continuing the, that that smooth curve. And in fact, the same could be said for for the U.S. economy and those of other nations as well. Agriculture saw output totaling three trillion yuan, growing by 3.7 percent in the first half. The industrial sector's output totaled 23 trillion yuan, rising by 4.3 percent. And services saw output、uh, coming in at 33 trillion yuan and jumping by 6.4 percent. Small and medium-sized enterprises play a crucial role in China's economy, despite relentless competition from larger companies. SMEs still have unique advantages that enable them to thrive. Ho Jing explores how a small company, Nano AR, makes its mark globally with specialized high-tech products. Transparent film displays in shopping malls, subways, exhibitions, fitness at home, and cars, with interactive functions too. Photonic Crystal Technology Company is a small high-tech company in Shenzhen. It boasts a complete supply chain of transparent display under the brand Nano AR, with only around 50 employees. All great companies start small. We can see that the world's top 10 enterprises have been changing in the past two to three decades. High-tech companies are making up a larger proportion of the top 10, with innovation being fundamental to all of them. As a special economic zone, Shenzhen is one of the ideal places for private companies, especially small and medium ones, to run their businesses. The local government has offered a lot of support to early-stage startups, especially tech companies like us. For example, they would waive rental fees. Also, private companies are dynamic part of Shenzhen's economy. There is an established ecosystem that makes it easy to find clients or partners. As the saying goes, science and technology are the primary production forces. As the head of overseas sales and marketing, Denny said in a both confident and modest way that the job is quite easy, as the company provides a unique product to the market. We have already have、um, sales or to say、um, POC projects around the、U、United States and also、um, in Europe and also including、um, Japan and South、um, Asia countries. Even as a startup, Nano AR is dedicated to education and public welfare. For example, they offer their AR product for free to local museums.
For traditional displays, the cultural relics just stood still, so they were not that vivid. Thanks to this AR display, the cultural relics are brought to life. Many children and adults really enjoyed this new form of exhibition. Just as young people are considered the future of a country, SMEs like Nano AR are also seen as a beacon of hope for China's economic development. That was Ho Jing reporting. Well, Sichuan province has made significant efforts to promote streamlined customs policies in order to reduce clearance times. At Qingbaijiang Customs in Chengdu, a mobile x-ray inspection system is used to scan containers without the need for manual opening. Customs officer Liu Xun says the innovative system significantly improves efficiency. If done manually, the entire process of opening, unpacking, and repacking a container could take up to three to four hours. But with our container inspection system, we can complete the process within just three to five minutes. Enterprises can apply for the new clearance procedure in advance. This allows for immediate release and loading of goods without manual inspection, reducing loading time from the previous two days to just three hours. Britain has the highest rate of inflation in the developed world, and it's driving up the cost for essential goods and services. Kitty Logan reports from a street market in a town north of London. Cash-strapped consumers are seeking to save where they can. The annual UK food inflation rate has dropped to 14.6% after hitting a record high last April. But prices are still out of reach for many. We've seen that inflation is currently outstripping wages, so individuals and households are having to deal with a reduction in the affordability of goods and services as their budgets get squeezed. Analysts say high inflation is partly driven by reliance on food imports and extreme weather hampering domestic harvests. We've also got a very tight labour market in the UK, which could be contributing to the UK's lingering inflation problem. Worker shortages in the UK, particularly since Brexit, as well as a high number of people who are long-term sick, have added to those wage pressures. Rising business costs often create higher prices for the consumer. I was very reticent about increasing my prices. You build regulars when you when you trade in different markets, and I've seen a lot of businesses in the past sort of throw their prices up too high and then I think they lose trades. The strain on household budgets also means less cash for life's luxuries. The cost of borrowing is up too, causing chaos for the mortgage market. But there are signs that at least food inflation is easing. Some food prices are dropping slightly, like the cost of bread, but the price of eggs, vegetables and fruit are still up about a third on what they were this time last year. Favourites like tea and coffee now cost 18% more, and fish prices are still going up, meaning many are cutting back. Seeds and grain costs have risen too. We have tried and keep the prices as low as possible in last year or so, but then some of the product has gone up considerably in last year, some things like sunflower seeds, for example, which come from Ukraine. And business is slow amidst consumer caution. In the past, you know, people used to just buy. Now they just look at the price and see how much is it they're trying to compare. So, yeah, it's affecting, uh, it's affecting a business. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has pledged to halve inflation by the end of this year, though he hasn't set an exact figure. And with the economy still not growing, 
the UK may fall short of that target. That was Kitty Logan reporting. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, Wimbledon has a new men's champion. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. 47 minutes past the hour, Carlos Alcaraz put aside a poor start and came from behind to end Novak Djokovic's 34-match winning streak at the All-England Club, claiming his first Wimbledon uh, or championship at Wimbledon and second Grand Slam trophy overall. World number one Alcaraz prevented Djokovic from collecting what would have been a record-tying eighth title at Wimbledon and fifth in a row at the grass court tournament. Uh, making history that uh, I, I did today, uh, it's yeah the happiest uh, moment of, of my life and I think uh, it's not going to change for a long time. So yeah, it's like beating Novak, uh, winning a Wimbledon uh, championship is something that I dream uh, about since I, since I started playing tennis. So uh, that's why is the biggest moment of my life. Djokovic was also kept from earning a 24th career major. Despite the loss, he congratulated Alcaraz on winning the championship. Obviously, tough one to swallow, you know, I mean, when you are so close. Um, but again, you know, these are the moments that we work for every single day to be able to play in the biggest stages and biggest courts, most important tournaments in the world. And uh, I've been blessed with so many incredible matches throughout my career. So this is just another one uh, in the history books for me. So I'm really, really grateful, even though, of course, I I did not win today, but uh, I lost to a better player and I have to congratulate him and move on stronger, hopefully. With the win, Alcaraz matched the open era record for the fewest attempts before clinching a second men's singles Grand Slam title and became the third youngest man to win Wimbledon in the open era. Uh, The age gap between 36-year-old Djokovic and 20-year-old Alcaraz was the widest in any uh, men's Grand Slam final since 1974. In diving action at the World Aquatics Championships, Chinese pair Yang Hao Lian Junjie won the gold medal in the men's synchronized 10-meter platform. Earlier in women's action, Chuan Hongchan and Chen Yuxi retained the title in the women's synchronized 10-meter platform. The teens dominated the match, beating second-placed Andrea Spindolini, Syriax, and Louise Tolson of Britain by over 58 points. In men's 1-meter springboard, 2017 world champion Peng Jianfeng claimed his first world title in six years from his favored one-meter springboard. The 29-year-old scored 440 points in six dives. Uh, Zheng Yuan added a bronze medal for China. In cycling, Hanok Mulabaharhan took the overall victory at the 2023 Tour of Qinghai Lake after the eighth and final stage. The 23-year-old riding for Italy's green project Bardiani CSF uh, Faizan completed the tour in about 31 hours to steal the title, and he was awarded both the yellow and green jerseys. His teammate Alessio Nieri kept the polka dot jersey for best climber. Mulabaharhan credited the individual title to good planning and solid teamwork. Yeah, it's really amazing. As a team, we work uh, all the day, and finally we won the yellow jersey. No, I, we are already have the plan to get the yellow jersey, but uh, with the team, with everything, we finally managed to get it.
The concluding stage, uh, stretching from Gongha to Tsaka, covered 200 kilometers and featured three intermediate sprints and one climb. The two, uh, rather, the 22nd Tour of Qinghai Lake cycling race had a total distance of over 1,300 kilometers. China's track and field teams concluded the Asian Athletics Championships with two more gold medals from women's events. Uh, young Liu Jing took gold in the women's 20-kilometer race walk, while teammate Wang Kaihua took silver in the men's event. In the women's uh, shot put final, Song Jiayuan stormed to a dominant victory with a throw of over 18 meters. Huang Boakai added a bronze medal in the men's pole vault final. In the women's 200-meter final, Li Yuteng won another bronze medal for China. China finished second uh, on the medal table after Japan with eight gold, eight silver, and six bronze medals. In football, Italy's clinched their first UEFA European Under-19 Championship title since 2003, uh, 2003, besting Portugal 1-0 in the final. Uh, the championship game marked the second matchup between the finalists in the tournament following uh, Portugal's dominating 5-1 victory in the group stage. Portugal maintained superior ball possession throughout the match, but it was Italy that capitalized on an opportunity in the 19th minute. Uh, this victory serves as a consolation for Italy's youth ranks following their loss to Uruguay in the FIFA Under-20 World Cup final and an early departure from the UEFA European Under-21 Championship in the group stage. Uh, Inter Miami's unveiled Sergio Basquet as uh, a player ahead of the former, uh, rather ahead of his former Barcelona teammate Lionel Messi. The Spanish midfielder, who turned 35 on Sunday, completed his long-awaited signing with the Major League Soccer Club and will play through the 2025 season. Uh, the event, billed as the Unveil, took place at the team's stadium in Fort Lauderdale. It comes the day after Lionel Messi, MLS, and Inter Miami finalized his signing through the 2025 season. The club now has the fewest points in MLS and is mired in an 11-match winless streak. It has 12 MLS matches left in the season and is 12 points out of a playoff spot. Uh, you're listening to the Beijing Hour and coming up in Culture, an exhibition featuring Dunhuang and the ancient Silk Road. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men Days of Future Past. You are listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman and you're listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi everyone, I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. 53 minutes past the hour. In culture and entertainment, an exhibition featuring the splendors of Dunhuang on the ancient Silk Road is opened in Hangzhou, Zhejiang Province. Entitled Convergence of Civilizations, Dunhuang on the Silk Road, the exhibition is at the China National Silk Museum. More than 30 national first-class cultural relics are on display. One of the highlights is the reconstructed scene of Cave 285, also known as the Hall of the Gods, from the world-renowned Mogao Grottoes in Dunhuang. A curator, Ji Xiaofan of the China National Silk Museum says the cave primarily focuses on Buddhism, but also incorporates elements of Taoism, Hinduism, uh, Brahmanism, and ancient Greek mythology. Dunhuang is the place where the four civilizations meet. So in this cave, you see the six religions, and the figures of ancient Chinese myth and legends can also be seen in this cave. What is more valuable is that it is the first cave with detailed chronology in Mogao grottoes, which is of great historical significance to the study of all the caves in Dunhuang. Uh, this exhibition is part of the 2023 Silk Road Week that will last until August 22nd. 
New exhibition featuring almost 200 photos taken by a Pulitzer Prize winner, Liu Huang Xing, has opened at the Museum of Art Pudong in Shanghai. Uh, it's the first large-scale exhibition of the photographer's work, and Zheng Hong has more from Shanghai. In the late 1970s, Liu Hongxing became the chief photographer for Time magazine and Associated Press to work in Beijing. He was among the first photojournalists to document China following the enactment of reforms. Reports on a society need to focus on people, because they are the society. When I was a photojournalist in China, I tended to focus on details. What's Chinese people's life like? How do they go on dates? How do the ladies have plastic surgeries? How do ladies get their hair done? From celebrities to ordinary people, Liu's photographs were more than just on-the-scene reporting, but delivered aesthetic expressions of strong personal interest. He spent three decades documenting the modernization of China and how it changed the lives of ordinary citizens. The achievements brought by China's reform and opening up cannot be explained with one or two photos. I've been keeping track of China's development in different periods. The exhibition with these photos tells a larger story to the world. Liu's career as a correspondent was not limited to China. The exhibition includes Liu's documentation of historical moments he witnessed in the United States, India and former Soviet Union. Many of the photos are being displayed for the first time. I've been a photographer for half a century. There were many negatives of photos I took in various countries left in my suitcases. I've spent the last four to five years sorting them out. We want people to learn more about what happened in China and overseas in the past few decades. And it will also bring back memories for many Chinese people. The exhibition will run until December 17th. That was Zheng Hong reporting from Shanghai. We're at 56 minutes past the hour. Advanced screenings of Creation of the Gods 1, Kingdom of Storms, played across China this weekend. It's the first film uh, of a live-action fantasy trilogy. Stories based on a Ming Dynasty novel called uh, Feng Shen Yanyi, or The Investiture of the Gods. It's a work of fiction that weaves mythology and history into a narrative. Many Chinese moviegoers say the special effects were stunning. The film was truly impressive. The big screen was fantastic, and I was stunned from the very beginning. The special effects were exquisite, and I'm especially impressed by the scene where a snowflake fell into the eye of a character in the film. The sound effects of the special screening room were immersive. It felt like I was right there with the shooting arrows, horses, and battles. I felt that the special screening room truly lived up to his name. The film boasts a star-studded cast, including actors Chris Phillips, Lee Shui-jian, and Huang Bo. We're at 58 minutes past the hour now. Checking the forecast before we go for the day. Beijing's at 23 degrees Celsius overnight. Tuesday will be sunny with a high of 35. Hong Kong is bracing for Typhoon Talim that's expected to bring rain and windy weather with a high of 29 on Tuesday. On the mainland, authorities in Guangdong and Hainan province have also made preparations canceling flight, train, and ferry services. Torrential rains also expected across Guangxi, Hunan, and Jiangxi in the coming days.
Well, elsewhere, Tokyo's at 29 degrees overnight, a light rain turning to overcast and 39 on Tuesday. Islamabad has 27 degrees uh, overnight. Uh, some rain tomorrow with a high of 35. Bangkok's at 27 this evening, then light rainfall in 36. In Africa, Nairobi's going to be overcast, turning to cloudy with a high of 26. Uh, finally, to uh, Oceania, uh, Sydney's at uh, 9 this evening, then light rain turning to sunny in 22 on Tuesday. Auckland is 12 overnight, then a light rain in 15. That's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, Chinese and U.S. climate envoys have held a four-hour meeting in Beijing. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together.